The glitter and glamour of the strip, with its promise of easy, unearned riches, contrasted with the crowd of homeless in the park, victims of the dark side of the dream. It was a memory that stuck, a glitzy playground where suckers were induced to gamble at games that, I knew from mathematics, they must collectively lose. The winners were celebrated as poster people to draw more suckers, while a greater number, betting too much or too often, were impoverished and sometimes even ruined. That is from the legendary book, A Man for All Markets, by Ed Thorpe. Ed Thorpe was this incredible individual. He first conquered the field of mathematics, rising to the professor ranks, and then used some of those talents in cracking really the gambling markets, going into blackjack and roulette, and finding ways to fundamentally beat the casinos at their own games. And then once he had enough of the gambling markets, he turned to what he calls the greatest casino on earth, Wall Street. And he dominated Wall Street by creating really what was the first quant hedge fund at the time. So we're going to be discussing Ed Thorpe's autobiography, A Man for All Markets. It's going to be in a story format, but has a lot of amazing insights for us in our everyday lives. And when we look at investing or even just probability as a whole, because a lot of his math skill set revolved around his knowledge of probability. So let's jump into the episode. Much of Ed Thorpe's worldview revolves around this idea to really test and question these commonly held assumptions that the world or different people place on you. So he would want to create his own judgments based on experiments he conducts, based on this trial and error method, rather than simply being told this is the way things have always been done. He picked up this worldview from a very young age when he was always really brilliant as a young student. He was doing these competitions in chemistry and physics, these national and statewide competitions. And to try to advance his skill set, to try to win these national competitions, he would learn new skills by doing the craft, by practicing and carrying out these various experiments so he could question those original assumptions and he could test if his idea on how a certain scientific experience should turn out would end up being true or not. I think that's important for us to understand just this simple fact of his early years. He was very science and math inclined from a very young age. And this tendency to practice experiments often was what helped him always question the assumptions, the commonly held assumptions later on in his life when he was tackling problems in gambling and in the financial markets. Another thing he learned very early on in his life was to prioritize weightlifting and his own physical health. There was a phrase he would say to himself, an hour in the gym means one less day in the hospital. As in later on in life, he wouldn't 
have to deal with these really tough health concerns if he spends time working out, taking care of his physical fitness. This is something we've stressed on across many episodes, the benefits of exercise across our mental health and memory and obviously physical health, many of the physical health benefits. And it shows how much Ed Thorpe, for his own mental performance, but also just recognizing the finality of life and understanding that every hour he spends in the gym is prolonging his life. It's making sure he gets to have a healthier life for much longer. So we're now going to start discussing some of the most exciting times in the book. And some of these chapters, the gambling chapters, are what make this book phenomenal. It's these ups and downs that Ed Thorpe is going through as he's progressing through the gambling world, the world of casinos and these mobsters back then in these early 60s and 70s. So Ed Thorpe at the time, he was doing a PhD in mathematics and he came across these commonly held assumptions that he naturally started questioning that gambling and gambling games were impossible to beat. With his mathematical experience, he felt it just intellectually stimulating to try to create some solution to some of these gambling games. So some of the things he did to conquer the world of casinos, to conquer the gambling space, was he devised systems to fundamentally beat both roulette games and blackjack games. So to start off with roulette, I think the roulette one is really interesting. It's so fascinating. While he was a professor, he learned of the famous professor Claude Shannon, who is known now as this father of the information age. He sought out Claude Shannon within the department, asking him for advice on his paper on this system to beat roulette. Basically, the idea he had in mind was to use different mathematical equations to predict the friction and the location of the roulette ball as it's falling down the machine, falling down the rotor, based on gravity and based on the circular motion. And then he would use this and he would create a wearable device to predict the certain range that it would fall to because this machine had to calculate all these movements, the friction and gravity in real time. So he had to use a machine that was close to the roulette machine to actually predict the outcome in real time. So most people thought this was impossible at the time. And if you hear how I'm describing it, this is out of my wheelhouse, but it doesn't sound very possible to me. Many famous people like the physicist Feynman thought it was impossible as well. But Claude Shannon was very intrigued by his idea and decided to work with him to see if they could actually create this solution. And over a few months of working on this project, on this wearable device that uses his mathematical equations to predict the friction and location of a roulette ball as it's falling down the roulette machine, they were able to actually create this system. And what the system would do, it would use those equations, and they made this the very first wearable device. It's considered the first wearable computer device, as in a wearable device with transistors on it, similar to an Apple Watch today, but obviously much more archaic and much more of a singular purpose back then. 
and it would be worn by one of the players, either Thorpe or Shannon, while they're betting. And what it would do, the wearable device, and you're wearing earphones, it would play musical notes that each musical note corresponds to a revolution of the ball in real time around the roulette machine. And the last note it plays as the ball is slowing down and getting closer to falling off the machine, the last note it played corresponded to a range of numbers on the board that you're supposed to bet on. So they would bet on five or six numbers, but their probability to win shot up because it used such a precise method to calculate based on the friction and gravity where the ball is going to land. And typically, I believe in roulette, you're expected to have a losing edge of about negative 5%, which means if you play 100 hands for $1 each, by the end of the night, you should walk away down $5. You would win some and you would lose some, but you would end up with $95. So you would have five less than what you came in with, your $100. So Ed Thorpe and Claude Shannon's roulette system, this unbelievable first wearable computer device that uses super complex mathematical equations to predict the friction and location of a roulette ball going across the machine and making these revolutions using gravity's effect. All of this was able to create a 44% edge in roulette for Thorpe and Shannon. That is crazy to think about. A 44% edge, typically you may see anywhere from a 5 to maybe up to 10% edge after you're accounting for fees. And it's always the casino has the edge. That's why you have to recognize that as someone who would gamble regularly. But Claude Shannon and Thorpe were able to create the system that gave them this 44% edge and they were able to hammer it home until casinos started recognizing that these guys keep consistently winning. Something must be going on. So eventually they had to switch their strategies. Now it's interesting once they switched their strategies, they didn't say, let's keep going after new casinos. I mean, these guys were professors, and I think a lot of the motivation was around the intellectual challenge, but they did decide to go to a new game now. Now they wanted to figure out another game in the gambling arena that they could beat that most people had said is unbeatable to this point. How can you question these common assumptions? So when tackling blackjack, Thorpe devised this betting system that basically gave players an edge by betting heavier when the deck was 10 rich, which means the higher cards like 10, jack, queen, king, and betting lighter when the deck is 10 weak. Because if you're trying to bet, you want to bet heavy when the odds are in your favor when there's a lot of these 10s in the deck. Because if you're able to get multiple 10s and also split your hands, then it's easier for you to get much closer to that 20 or 21. Whereas if you're betting when it's 10 light, when there's a lot of twos and threes, typically that's how you end up losing in blackjack. So he recognized, although you may enter the game with a losing probability, maybe a negative 5% edge like roulette, there's ways that if you position the game, you could end up gaining an edge, like betting heavily when the deck is 10 rich. And this whole concept that he learned from Blackjack, I think 
him cracking blackjack was incredible. It created really the modern card counting system, and he created even more elaborate methods to do advanced card counting. And since then, many people have iterated and created new methods to do card counting that were originally based on his first methods with ranking the value of different cards. It went even past this 10-deck strategy. So he created this modern card counting system. But the real takeaway for Ed Thorpe when he was getting into blackjack and understanding how he could beat the game using his simple 10-deck strategy was that he should bet heavily when the odds are in his favor. So one thing he said was, I also believe then, as I do now after more than 50 years as a money manager, that the surest way to get rich is to play only games or make those investments where I have an edge. This helped him a lot later on in his investing career because it taught him this idea of position sizing. When we're making investments and you're managing a fund, let's say you want to allocate 10 to 15 investments, you have to have some type of strategy how much you want to put behind each company. This idea behind position sizing gave him a framework that later, when he was approaching investing, he could recognize this is an investment, this is a company that I know I have an edge, maybe I understand it better, or I see a much wider mispricing, so I should bet a larger amount. And when you see a much smaller mispricing, when you see the market is very close to what you think the value should be, then you may not invest that much, or you may not invest at all. So us as individuals, as investors, we really want to identify these clear edges in investing, and we want to size our positions to allocate enough capital on bets that we truly think we have this edge. Some of the most important lessons that Thorpe gained from this time period in his life was really understanding the flaws behind this gambling mentality. One of the things he said about people who would regularly gamble was that players are confused about the inevitability of losing in the long term because they each play for a comparatively short time, which allows some of them to be lucky winners. So we're noticing how people constantly can deceive themselves into thinking they have certain skill behind a game when really it's just luck, especially in these games like gambling where over the long term, you're meant to lose. Based on the mathematics, the casino has the edge. The casino always wins. So a lot of people who are regular gamblers will blind themselves from this fact and they will end up gambling way too long, hoping to get back to cost basis, especially if they're losing. They'll think, maybe I'll just get lucky on the next round, on the next hand. And the problem with this we spoke about it a lot on the quit episode, which is a phenomenal book. But the problem with this, this sunk cost fallacy, is that people who are down from their cost, if you've bet $100 and now your chips on the table are only $50, you will keep taking bigger and bigger risks to get back to your cost basis. It's that idea of sure loss aversion where we don't want to lock in our loss. So you're going to keep playing this gambling game that over the long term, the more hands you play, the more likely you are to lose until you get back to your cost basis, which in many ways is flawed thinking. 
we have to embrace this sunk cost fallacy where if we've lost our $50 already, then either we have to walk away because the odds haven't changed. We probably can lose more if we keep playing, or we have to find a new strategy that actually gives us an edge. And then we could bet a larger amount because we have an edge. We could play that position size. I think these reflections were really important for Ed Thorpe right before he was entering into the financial world because he learned some of the traits that these regular gamblers tend towards. And he started to recognize very similar traits in investors. Many investors who trade on the stock market based on momentum or hype or news tend to follow these same paths. They suffer from the same loss aversion and trying to just get a quick big windfall. So after years of conquering blackjack and roulette with the wearable device, and eventually even finding a winning method for Baccarat, the casinos started to take a notice of Thorpe. And obviously, they didn't like Thorpe because he was hurting their profits and he was winning. He was turning the edge ever in his own favor. And back then, it's when there wasn't really nearly as much regulation. So casinos would do some very real mob stuff if you go too far, if you're winning too much. And what they did with Thorpe was on his way home as he was leaving Vegas, they took certain brakes and certain devices out of his car to hope that he would crash on his way home. As he was going down mountains and he couldn't break, they hoped he would crash. Luckily, Thorpe didn't crash. He was able to scurry the car over before it actually crashed into anything. And he got some help from a local to fix his car. But this lesson really taught him this shouldn't be the business that he's in. On a long enough time frame, he may get killed. He may get poisoned. He was poisoned once by some of the casinos. At this point, he realized it's about time to switch courses. And he thought to himself, could my methods for beating games of chance give me an edge in the greatest gambling arena on earth, Wall Street? So Thorpe now started spending much more time trying to learn the financial markets and understand what are the commonly held assumptions and what does he disagree with. In the early days, when he was just consuming information, he said, much of what I read was dross, but like a baleen whale filtering the tiny nutritious krill from huge volumes of seawater, I came away with a foundation of knowledge. He kept seeking out different sources of information to get a wide perspective, but he recognized that most of the financial advice was useless to him. He would say that much of the stock picking advice, different stories or company recommendations that are given are useless unless he truly understands what he's buying. He wants to have that deep understanding of what he's buying. And much of the issue that he points to when he says this stock picking advice and recommendations stories are harmful for us or are useless for us is that investors face this natural agency problem where promoters and CEOs, all these different people who are selling these stories and these recommendations to you, their incentives are meant to show you the best story possible because they want you to make that acquisition, make that purchase. Whereas your incentives is to simply make money. It's not to just buy the company, it's to actually make money on the company. He said, 
When the interests of salesmen and promoters differ from those of the client, the client had better look out for himself. We know this is something that Charlie Munger says a lot also. It's something that he mentioned in his Psychology of Human Misjudgment episode, episode three that we covered. But he talks about how there's this natural agency problem between people who are trying to sell you something, like sell you a stock or a story behind a company, or really sell you anything, sell you a home, and you as the buyer, you as the client who actually has different incentives. You want to profit off that. You don't want to simply buy something that you could end up losing money on. So it's important for us to understand that many of these recommendations are probably not useful for us unless we have that deep understanding. Again, unless we have that edge that we keep going back to. Another thing he recognized was that if you're following the masses into an investment, there's a good chance you're too late. So he said, be aware that information flows down a food chain with those who get it first eat and those who get it late being eaten. So those who get it first eat and those who get it late being eaten. So you not only have to be early enough into an investment to be right on your thesis, but you have to have this variant perception or different view from the masses to see really great returns. Because if you're copying what everyone else is doing, at that point, the expectations are so high that it's fairly hard to make money. If everyone else thinks it's a great investment and everyone's predicting the growth of the company will be 50% a year for the next 10 years, there are only so many companies that have done that. There's, I don't know if any come to mind that have grown 50% every year for 10 years straight. But at times, expectations will get that high because everyone slowly, it starts with a big whale who eats first. They're the ones who say, I like this stock. Maybe it's Warren Buffett going out and buying a company. And then slowly, other people will follow him. And then slowly, people follow the second in line. And then it keeps going down the chain until you're the last one to eat. And if you're investing too late, like I said, those expectations are way too high. He was very careful to lean into these stories. He would say, stories sell stocks, the wonderful new product that will revolutionize everything, the monopoly that controls a product and sets prices. When he hears such tales, he should ask a key question. At which point is this company a good buy? What price is too high? So that's, again, going back to those implied expectations. You're asking, this sounds like a great story, but what are the expectations baked in? What is inherent to this company that I have to believe to think the story is going to work out? If the story is that this wonderful new product will revolutionize everything, like Tesla is going to revolutionize the EV market, which very well may be true, but you have to start asking the questions, how much of the market do they have to revolutionize? Do they have to reach 50% market share or 75%? Have any companies in the past gotten that high of a market share? How many cars would they have to sell? And how many do they sell right now? What type of growth rate would that be? So answering these basic questions around the implied expectations will help you dissect whether this story is way too hyped up and everyone has eaten before you, everyone has bought into the story 
and you're following the masses, or if you're early to the story, if you're early to the investment, and you have a very different view than the masses. Thorpe hammered home on this point to beware what the masses are doing when he said, lesson, do not assume what investors call momentum, a long streak of either rising or falling prices will continue unless you can make a sound case that it will. So he is constantly looking for if this stock movement or this momentum, this hype is actually substantiated, it's actually that there's an investment thesis and it's one that he understands, he believes he has an edge. And if not, then don't believe the story, don't believe the momentum and don't fall for this trap of just doing what the masses are doing. So for Ed Thorpe, he eventually found this massive edge in the markets by using this hedging strategy. He created really what was the first quantitative hedge fund or quant fund where he would assess mispricings between the price of options and the price of the common stock. And back then, there was no option pricing model like the Black-Scholes model, which is widely used today. There was no option pricing model to assess the differences, the mispricings between options and stocks. So at times, there could be these massive mispricings. And it's actually crazy to know the Black-Scholes model that most people rely on for option pricing today was actually first based on Thorpe's research and his hedge fund strategies creating these hedge positions across option warrants and common stock. To describe Thorpe's strategy, he said, I compared different securities of the same company with the object of finding relative mispricing from which I could construct a hedged position, long the relatively undervalued, short the relative overvalued. And this was a neutral hedging strategy that really takes away any type of market or individual stock risk, like company risk, because he is only working on the mispricing across securities for the same company. So it's really just an arbitrage that he's waiting for it to close. This was by no means a small feat. This was incredible that he was able to crack these different mispricings because like we mentioned, the Black-Scholes option pricing model didn't exist back then. So there wasn't a formulaic way of pricing options. And he was still a professor at this time. He actually was a professor for 20 or 30 years while all of this was going on, the gambling and the hedge fund work. And he sent a paper to the individuals Black and Scholes, it's two people who created the option pricing model. He sent his paper to them, and that's what they originally used to build off their option pricing model. Thorpe said he spent a ton of time creating the equations, the mathematical formulas, and it took pages on pages of notes. It wasn't like he spent a few days and then was able to crack the system. It turned out to have incredible results. It was very low risk because, like we said, he's tracking these mispricings without having actual market or stock selection risk. It's a neutral hedge strategy. And his hedge fund, Princeton Newport Partners, over the 18 years that it had clients and accepted money, it only had three down months. Over 18 years, only three months they lost money. 
and it returned 23% annually. Those are incredible returns. For 18 years to return 23%, consistently avoid these down months, which was likely because of the neutral hedge strategy. Otherwise, if you're investing in individual companies, typically, even if you're the best investor in the world, you'll likely suffer from down months and even down quarters, down years when the market or when certain companies don't perform as well as you expect. But he was so early to this trend of option mispricing that he was able to take advantage of his edge and he was able to bet heavily on his edge. After about 20 years, he had found a lot of success in the financial markets and previously in the gambling markets. He felt it was time to walk away from the hedge fund world because he really wanted to prioritize spending more time on what he considered the right things, like spending time with family and learning and traveling the world with his wife, Vivian. And I think that's why Thorpe is really a great role model for all of us, because he obviously exudes a lot of wisdom. We can see throughout his life this wisdom around betting when you have the edge or questioning the commonly held assumptions, being cautious of these traits of gambling mentality. But at the same time, he would still prioritize his everyday life. He wasn't just seeking out massive riches. He was still teaching students on the side while he was doing all this. He was still exercising for an hour a day to hold off those hospital visits later in his life. He walked away while he was at the peak in his financial career, 20 years in and returning 23% a year, to spend more time with his family as they were growing up and to travel with his wife. So it's a really interesting case where you see most high performers, in a way, it seems like they may have these golden handcuffs. It's impossible for them to walk away or to have any other hobbies or things that are important to them. But I think all of us, we do still need a little bit of that balance. We should all prioritize some physical fitness in our lives. We should all prioritize spending time with family and close friends and always looking to learn new things and to travel to new places. I want to share two really interesting crossovers while he was in the financial world. So early in his life, in his 30s, he was actually set up by a family friend to have dinner with Warren Buffett. And Ed Thorpe is 89 years old, so Buffett is only a few years older than him. That means Buffett was also in his 30s and the earlier years of his career. And they had this dinner together where they really hit it off right away. And the purpose of the dinner for the family friend was that they were invested in Buffett's original partnership, which he ran for about 12 or 13 years, had incredible results but started to close it down as the market was getting too optimistic in those early 70s period. And what the family friend was really doing was they were asking Buffett to evaluate Ed Thorpe if they think Thorpe would make for a good investment, if his hedge fund would make for a good investment after that family gets their investment proceeds back from the Buffett partnership. He was winding it down. And apparently Thorpe did pass this Buffett test. They had a lot of similar views. Thorpe looked at things a little differently. He found the mispricings between individual securities with the option and with the stock, and then he would bet heavily because that was his edge, whereas Buffett would find 
these mispricings with undervalued companies that he feels like have a lot of room to grow. But Buffett approved of Thorpe, and Thorpe, when reflecting on that time discussing with his wife, he said that he felt Buffett would become the richest person in the world one day. And it wasn't until the early 80s, around 1983, that Thorpe started realizing he heard the name Berkshire for some reason. Berkshire popped up in his life again, and he had never heard that Buffett was investing capital out of Berkshire. But now he started to look into it. He realized Buffett is investing this capital out of Berkshire. And Thorpe, knowing that this guy is so sharp with fundamental company analysis, and he believed Buffett would become the richest person one day, Thorpe immediately bought shares for $1,000 a share and just thinking, I'm just going to store this away for many years. So that ended up becoming a very successful investment for Thorpe. At this time of recording, Berkshire's Class A shares are $477,000 a share. So he turned that $1,000 into $477,000. And it's this interesting run-in that Thorpe and Buffett met so early in their careers in their 30s before Buffett went off to do the Berkshire investing and build Berkshire Hathaway into the company it is today. And as Thorpe was just starting his hedge fund strategy. He was just starting to explore, do I have a real edge behind this mispricing of options? Now, near the end of his career, as he was walking away from his hedge fund, Princeton Newport Partners, he actually met Ken Griffin, who is the founder of Citadel, which is one of the biggest hedge funds today. And upon meeting Ken Griffin, Ken Griffin was studying. He was very young at the time. He was studying some of the methods that Thorpe had written about. Thorpe decided to invest in Ken Griffin's hedge fund. And this was while Griffin was still in college. He invested as the very first LP, the very first limited partner in Ken Griffin's hedge fund Citadel. And that as well has turned out to be this incredible investment for Thorpe. So not only has he had success in gambling and then in the financial markets with his option mispricing strategy, but he also did this great job at finding fund managers who, in their own regard, had a specific edge, like Buffett with his undervalued company analysis and Ken Griffin emulating much of that quant hedge fund strategy that Thorpe originally laid out. So to discuss one of Ed Thorpe's guiding principles when building his hedge fund and really just thinking about teams in general, he would constantly seek out these win-win outcomes. And now we're seeing this as a massive trend, a recurring trend. It's something that Sam Zell, Reed Hastings, Charlie Munger, they all talk about the great effects that win-win outcomes can have, especially when you're trying to acquire talent and unite talent within your team. And Thorpe discusses very similar lessons. He said, in order to attract and keep superior staff I paid wages and bonuses well above the market rate. This actually saved money because my employees were far more productive than average. The higher compensation limited turnover, which saved time and money otherwise used to teach my one-of-a-kind investment methodology. At the higher levels, it kept people from breaking off and going into business for themselves. His idea of constantly paying people more allows him to both 
get the best talent, this human capital that is really important in today's day and age and the investment business or in any intangible-based business. So you're getting the best talent and you're also limiting the turnover. At the end of the day, that may end up saving costs for you, even though you're paying more than your competitors because you are avoiding future competition. You're avoiding people going off and starting their own product. You are limiting the time you have to spend training new people, and you're getting more internal motivation and productivity out of all your employees. On the flip side, Thorpe would recognize that when people, when counterparties in negotiations or people in finance are consistently reneging on terms or haggling on the smallest points or being greedy or just generally distrustful when you're trying to make an agreement with them, you should recognize that these people will probably eventually burn you and they're going to prioritize their own gain. So why are you working with these people that you can't trust? We should ask ourselves, why are we working with this person if they keep acting in the same behavior? So we should generally seek out these win-win outcomes. We know that it'll encourage the best productivity and the best talent to naturally come to us. And we should be careful of these people who are trying to deceive us. A super, super interesting point of the book was when Thorpe started talking about how he predicted the Madoff, Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme 18 years before it happened. So what happened was he was a consultant for McKinsey and analyzing their financial results. And he was realizing this one account, this Bernie Madoff account, would consistently make 1% to 2% every month with no volatility of returns and no down months. They just consistently made their 1% and 2%. And Thorpe immediately started questioning that. He was asking, how can this be? Any investment cannot consistently generate a 1% to 2% return every month with no downside. Anytime someone tells you there's no downside, there's zero risk of downside, that's when your ears should shoot up and you should think maybe there's something fraud going on here. So at this point, Thorpe thought maybe something is wrong here. He thought maybe there's these fake trades, trades aren't actually taking place. And he describes, after analyzing about 160 individual options trades, we found that for half of them, no trade occurred on the exchange that Madoff said that they supposedly took place. As he was trying to confirm some of this information, he wanted to go to their offices and just see what was going on in their offices. And when he tried going there, he ran into this problem. He says, the head of compliance and of computer operations said that I would not be allowed through the front door. This is sending alarm signals off in my brain, and it's reminding me of Theranos. If you've read The Bad Blood Book, it's an unbelievable book. It's so entertaining, and even watching the show is good. But Theranos had a very similar activity where investors would come to the offices for their board meetings and for their presentations, and when they wanted to simply use the restroom, security had to escort them to the restroom to make sure that they don't see any of the other machines, these fraud machines in the offices. So we're seeing this was the same thing with Bernie Madoff. Thorpe at the time, he told his client at McKinsey that 
this must be a fraud. I've looked at the options trades. There's no trades going on. He's lying to you, basically. And it's really just a big Ponzi scheme. At the time, the client obviously was getting these great 1% to 2% returns a month. So they didn't really want to just cut off the investment. But Thorpe, he eventually convinced them that eventually all Ponzi schemes fall. And he would say, forecasting an ever-expanding Ponzi scheme that would one day end disastrously. The longer it went undetected, the bigger it would grow and the worse it would be when it collapsed. People say Madoff's Ponzi scheme went back as far as the 60s. So it was going on for maybe 40 years before it was caught. And what convinced the McKinsey client to let go of the trade was when he realized his job may be at risk if he doesn't sell this trade. That's what got him to actually let go of the trade. It took another 18 years for the Ponzi scheme to actually be caught in 2008. So Thorpe jokes about how that client may actually regret taking Thorpe's advice. He could have had another 18 years of success. But really, the core lesson that Thorpe wants us to draw from this is that this wisdom of crowds is a very dangerous thing. If you're relying on the whole crowd for information, but you haven't actually assessed if they've done the diligence, if they've done the research, and that connects back to our point earlier where if you're the last fish to eat, that's when you could really get punished. A lot of these investors into Madoff's Ponzi scheme saw the great returns and they would ask friends about it. And their friends said, yeah, these are great returns. And Thorpe talks about how it's oftentimes better to trust one smart person who does a lot of that diligence or is an expert in a field than to trust 10,000 amateurs, 10,000 people who are quote unquote the crowd who haven't spent any time doing the diligence. They are relying on the word of the next guy or in the case of owning companies, they believe in the greater fool theory. They believe that someone else will eventually pay a higher price than you will. This transitions us well into some of Thorpe's main lessons from the perils of financial markets, these ideas of leverage and spirals of death, what causes the cycles of recessions. So he says, the lesson of leverage is this. Assume that the worst imaginable outcome will occur and ask whether you could tolerate it. If the answer is no, then reduce your borrowing. He felt this firsthand early on into his financial career when he was really playing with commodities. He thought there was an opportunity in the commodity silver and he decided to jump in. It was early in his financial journey. He bought silver at a price of 240 with two-thirds leverage. So $1.60 was from the bank and $2.40 was the price. So now he's describing how this spiral of death started and it really taught him these ideas around being cautious, being very cautious of leverage. Then the price of silver dropped. When this happened, some people sold to capture their profit. This drove down the price still further until others who had borrowed to an even greater extent than I had, were sold out by their lenders as their accounts threatened to go underwater. These sales pushed the price down even more, forcing more sales by the remaining borrowers, causing silver to drop rapidly to a little below 160, just enough to wipe me out, 
after which it resumed its upward path. He constantly thinks, after learning this lesson, this idea that the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. So we're seeing with Thorpe, he learned the issue with leverage. If you take too much leverage and the worst case scenario happens, it falls overnight, then you could be wiped clean before the market turns back around and resumes its upward path. This reminds me very much of the GameStop and Melvin Capital issue, where Melvin Capital was actually shorting GameStop and all the Wall Street bets traders kept pushing up the price of the stock and more momentum, more fuel pushed up the price of the stock until Melvin Capital really just went out of business. They blew up because the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. So we should think about which areas we actually are willing to apply leverage and which areas we should never use leverage. Things like commodities or stock markets or especially crypto, where there's these spirals of death, like with Terra, with the Luna Terra debacle. When we see these areas that spirals of death and losses can happen so quickly and it could especially be heightened by consumer psychology. Markets can fall 25% in a day because people become scared and cautious and sell out, which drives even lower prices. Those are the areas we should avoid applying leverage. Areas that we can apply some leverage, but doing it with the right barriers in place are ones where we both have full control of the asset, we're owners of the asset, and we have enough room for error. It's a stable business that you have room for error. You're not going to see your profits cut in half overnight. That's why we see often in real estate, most real estate transactions use leverage because typically you're buying that whole property, that whole asset individually, and you're not expecting to see a drop of rents 50% in one night. Even if the market crashes 50%, it will take some time for that to impact your financial results. Much of Ed Thorpe's thoughts on the cycles of recessions remind me very much of Howard Marks. I think they have a very similar way about thinking of these cycles of recession. So Thorpe talks about how oftentimes in these cycles of recession, it's how history rhymes. They don't repeat, but it rhymes. We start seeing easy money policies and a lot of leverage causes individuals, investors to slowly overborrow, use much higher leverage levels than is acceptable. And they start speculating on investments where they believe that markets are going to keep increasing forever. Companies are going to go to the moon. And then all of a sudden, the market will start to shift slightly. It'll turn the other side or maybe sentiment will shift. It could be any type of external event that causes it to shift. And it starts with that high leverage People with such high leverage levels over borrowing, they're forced to do a margin payoff because they don't have the cash on hand. They end up needing to sell their company at a loss. And that leads to more distress, more consumer and investor fear, which then leads to even more forced selling. And that's this little spiral that keeps lowering the prices. And it's how we see this investor psychology play such a big role in assessing markets. 
we see this cycle of recessions where it starts with a kernel of truth. It starts with some good news and some easy money policies or great companies, great stories and momentum propping up companies. People start to all invest and follow the masses into the same companies, use leverage and use margin and speculate, thinking that their investment is going to go to the moon and markets keep going up and to the right. And then eventually, as it starts to turn, there's some people who are over levered and they have to sell their companies or they have some type of margin payoff. And that eventually leads to this cycle of more selling creates lower expectations and more fear in the markets, which then leads to more selling. And it keeps going and going until there's this market-wide investor fear. So we've covered most of the financial lessons that Thorpe gives us throughout his life, throughout his gambling and investing and just mathematics, common sense ideas. I want to talk about some of his general life wisdom that he imparted. One core idea that he talked about was how compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. It's this idea that slowly you keep building on your old base. So you want to find these investments that continue to compound on each other because over a long time period, that will lead to exponential returns. If you could ride it for a long time without disturbing the compounding, you're going to see these massive investment returns. What he advises for people who are seeking out compound interest, he says for the majority of people, it's easier just to simply invest in index funds and reduce the amount of turnover. Turnover means cycling between different companies because oftentimes that comes with certain taxes. So he says most people, if you don't actually have the time or the ability to assess companies and do the fundamental business analysis, then you should just invest in index funds and you'll get a good return. And if you let it compound for a long enough time horizon, it will turn out to be a very big number. Now, we know throughout this discussion, if you do feel like you have the skill set to invest in businesses, he mainly advises to only bet heavily when you have that edge, when you have an advantage. So oftentimes you want to look for these long-term stable businesses that can compound their profits or their revenues for a very long time horizon. And especially if they're in less competitive markets, that may allow the companies to do that even easier. But Thorpe's main lesson for us is bet when you have an edge. Don't waste time if you don't have an edge. And especially if you don't have an edge for markets and investing at all, then just put your money in index funds because you're going to do very well with them if you let it compound on a long time horizon. Another thing he talks about is how the wealth distribution follows a power law. And obviously, in the last three episodes, we spoke about power laws a lot. And he talks about how the richest people are much wealthier than the middle class because they're able to build up these asset bases that create opportunities for more assets in the future. It's that idea of compounding again. So his advice to us is to focus on building up the investments on our own personal balance sheets. It's these assets that we own that in turn passively generate income for us. So when we're not working, like if we go out and we buy a property or we buy a cash flowing business, when we're not working, 
that business is generating income for us that we could invest it into new businesses. And you continue that momentum, you continue that strategy of building wealth through this ownership model. Outside of the world of finance and markets, Thorpe had really great thoughts on approaching life as well. So he valued education very highly. He thought of education as this software update for our brain, and we should constantly seek out new sources of information and try to be this vicarious learner, learn ideas like probability or mathematics or psychology to help us make better decisions in the future. And he also spoke about and prioritized in some of his giving efforts that the key for the U.S. remaining a superpower was continuing these great education systems. So not only should we prioritize our own education throughout life and recognize how education doesn't end after you finish college, we should constantly pursuing new forms of education throughout our life to stay young and stay motivated. But we should also look to give back to education systems because that's what helps the next generation continue to flourish and to learn the same things that we did. So to share one last piece of advice from Thorpe, it was that he would really stress for you to build awareness of your habits, especially your bad habits, by writing down or logging every time you do something. And this is something we spoke about on the Atomic Habits episode and on the Dopamine Nation episode, where oftentimes that first step, the very first step of acknowledging and fixing a bad habit is the sense of awareness. So one of the tools that Ed Thorpe would do was that he would weigh himself every day. Pretty much first thing he did upon waking up was weigh himself, and that helped him both understand what his eating habits are to stay healthy and understand if he's been slacking off at the gym recently. And he compared this to many other areas where you could build this natural awareness of your habits, like with spending money, keeping track of the money you spend, or the food you're eating, keeping a log of what you're eating every day. Because if you naturally build this awareness, you're more likely to curb the bad habit. You start noticing the effect it has on you and the stranglehold that habit or addiction has on you, and you actually start thinking of ways that you could curb that bad habit or find a community that helps you develop the new habit, which replaces the bad habit. So that really closes up Ed Thorpe's book, A Man for All Markets. We've learned some phenomenal lessons throughout this book. I would say this is one of my favorite books of 2022 as well. It's super entertaining because his life is obviously like a movie from going into gambling, first starting as a PhD in mathematics, then going into gambling, and then taking over the financial and quant hedge fund world. There's so much to Ed Thorpe's life, and he imparts so much wisdom for us as well. Like his concepts of betting when the odds are in your favor, when you have the edge, and constantly questioning those commonly held assumptions. So Ed Thorpe is a role model for me. I think he will be a role model for most of you if you read this book. He seems like a very humble person and prioritize many areas of his life outside of just the success, spending time with his family and traveling and his own physical fitness and health. 
So we have a lot to learn from him. I hope you guys learned a lot and enjoyed this episode. Please share it with a friend if you think they'd like it. I'm excited to continue on the journey and thanks again for listening.